Adele D. from Maine, July 
Well, you know, I wanted to look at it. If there was a man in my closet, I might have liked that. But... <laughs> and they also said, you know, there was two red bands on my slip when I came in. And they said, somebody's going to be in the room with you. And they said, but we have no name. And I said, oh, it's okay. You know, it's okay. <laughs> but I, I said, uh, Is it, it might be another girl that's in on the convention. And... They'll give you the name later. Well, we'll find out. I said, if it's a man, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> now, I'm not dying for a man, you know. No way. I ain't taking care of nobody. <laughs> I've had my fill of that for many years. You guys are like a pad. Go look somewhere else. I suppose it's God's will. <laughs> you know, thy will be done. Well, stop up. This is a privilege to be here. And, you know, when, when Paul calls me, and I don't even know whether I said it or not, maybe I didn't, maybe I did, and I don't remember too good on many things. There's one thing I do remember is how I got drunk and how I got into this program, and I'm going to share that with you when the time comes. <laughs> but, you know, when he called me, I almost said, or I think I said, I'm not sure. He'd have to verify that. He don't know anything, so he wouldn't be able to say anything anyway. Because he keeps telling us he don't know anything. I almost said, you know, I've done this before. And then I, I believe, I don't think I did say it. Because, you know, when the telephone rings, as far as I'm concerned, it's God calling. And whatever's on the other side of that line and whatever's the message on the other side of that line, I better accept it. I didn't come into this program and say no. You know, I didn't know how to say no when I come into this program. It was, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, show me that. Oh, I'll be glad to do that for you. Hate the son of a gun for doing it, but I'll do it for you. You know, so when I come into this program, I, I don't believe I did say it, but I had it right. Oh, it, I've spoken at the roundup before, then I didn't say anything. Because uh, I'll tell you how that happened. I was at the Portland group, and... Um, there was a meeting, and someone asked me to speak. The chairperson said, Gal, would you like to say a few words? And I said, yeah, how long have we got? And uh, I spoke. And then the following week, we had a new chairperson. And the chairperson said to me, Gal, I'd like to have you say a few words for me. And I said, well, I spoke last week on Sunday night on my home group at that time. And he said, yeah, but I wasn't here. You don't have to think about that. You think about that. That was his choice. They told us that we have choices in this program. And that was his choice. So I said, I'm sorry. Yes, I will say a few words. And I remembered that. So I try not to refuse. Because maybe somebody else hasn't heard me. And we have a lot of people in here that are, are newcomers. And I mustn't forget that. I'm going to talk to you today. I'm going to share myself with you the newcomers, the old-timers too, but the newcomers. I don't know how deep to get into my story, 
Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a step girl, and I, I'm working now in the big book, and I think it's absolutely wonderful. God put me in Skowhegan. I moved from Portland. I lived in Portland for 47 years, and I moved a year, a year ago last May to Skowhegan with my own, my choice of move. Sold my business, my school, my ceramics, and I chose to move to Skowhegan to be on my son's land. I bought a, a new mobile home, and I am very comfortable, and I love it there. But I am by myself. I do my own thing. I'm, I don't live in with family, and I love them dearly. This is a miracle. What I'm doing today is a miracle. Not only with my sobriety, but it's a miracle that I'm with my son. And... Uh, this change has been a big, big change with me. As a matter of fact, uh, I, joined, I joined a meeting, and it was a meeting, and we made it into a group because I was floundering. I, I didn't have a group, and I was always used to being in a group. Uh, Portland group was my group. I hated them sometimes, you know. They wouldn't do what I wanted them to do. And uh, I balked, and I didn't like them, and I was going to quit them. I'm quitting and so for two months, I quit them. I wanted my way, and they weren't going to give it to me. And those old-timers, I'm telling you, there, there were really something. And we heard some stories last year about old-timers, last night about old-timers. And, you know, the program, I'm going to have to say it. I don't like to, but it was different. You did as you were told. You didn't fool around. I would go to the meeting and I'd be having my heart was up in here and I wanted to cry and they'd say, don't cry. Well, you know, when somebody tells you not to cry and it's up here, you want to really cry, you know. They told me to sit down and shut up. Now, they didn't get up here at the microphone and tell me. Yes, they did. But they... <laughs> yes, they did. But, you know, it was like on a... Like, I could hear what they were saying. And I was very dense, and I was a very sick girl. But they would say, sit down and shut up, and maybe I can get some of this program. And, you know, I was sitting right there. <laughs> they put me down front. I was all by myself. And there was only about seven to 14 people there, and they were all men. Now, I wasn't afraid of men. No way. <laughs> I was not afraid of men. I was not afraid of women either. I was just afraid of a gal. When I come into this program, broken, sad, full of resentment, full of anger, you know, we forget. We like to complain about this and that, the other thing, but we forget. We came in here. Many, many, many. I didn't come in here broke. I was lucky. I had a husband. I didn't lose my house. I didn't lose my car. I lost my dignity. I lost my faith. I lost hope. But you see, we forget. And I'm up here to remind you that you're not to forget. This is Alcoholics Anonymous, and you have been given a chance to live. Why complain? I came into this program, I had no choices. 
I knew nothing about a program being formed. I knew nothing of that. I knew nothing of people being together around a table that were staying sober. I didn't know what Alcoholics Anonymous meant. As a matter of fact, I didn't really know what an alcoholic was. Now, I like to call myself a drunk because nine times out of ten, you all know you got drunk. But you didn't get alcoholic. <laughs> you know, and I couldn't understand that. My head was so thick, you know. I was told once I had scrambled eggs between my ears, and I didn't like that person. No way. They don't know who they're talking to. But I was so sick, I didn't know I was that sick. I should have been hospitalized, and I was too frightened to go to Milestone, where they had offered me to go, and they would have had a doctor take care of me. And as soon as they said doctor, I said, no, no way. I'm scared. And we all came in here that way. I don't care if you were pushed in by your doctor or who you were pushed in here by. The feelings that are deep down inside are what pushed you in here. You were alone. We were frightened. We were sick. And we didn't even know it. I didn't know that I didn't know. Such a statement. I knew something was wrong. I wanted to stop drinking and I couldn't. The beautiful phrase, I'm going to stop tomorrow. I'm not going to drink tomorrow. Jack wants me to go to the First National, and I ain't going to drink. You know, Jack was always telling me what to do. That was my husband, by the way. I hated him with a passion. I'd have killed him, but I might have had to go to jail. It was his fault. Now, if I could get rid of him, I'd be all right. How many of us have said that? I'm glad to see you putting your hands up. <laughs> you know, I, I closed up the girl. I'm going to go off it a little bit. I closed up the girl a long time ago. Been in here a long time. I've been awful busy. And you know, they called me up, and I was always on that line service, and I was everywhere. And they called me up, and they said, I'm not going to just say Gertrude, but I don't remember her name. God bless her. I don't know where she is even. But they said she's in jail. I said, really? They said, you, they asked if you would come down to see her. You're her sponsor. I said, I am? <laughs> well, I had been playing around and working around with her, you know, and I went down. And, but before she went to jail now, before she went to jail, I can't stay sober because my husband drinks. Oh, he does? I said, so is mine. But I'm staying sober. Well, she said, if I didn't have him, you know, that'd be all right. And many of my girls have heard this story before, but they're going to hear it again. Because I went down to jail and I said, you know, her husband died. Her husband really died about a year. I didn't know that. 
So I went down to the jail and I saw her and I said, how are you doing? She said, you know, Jim died. No kidding. He did? Yeah. I thought, what the hell are you in here for? She said, because I've been drinking. I said, you told me if he died, you'd stop drinking. See you later. <laughs> Nothing I can do. I ain't gonna die for it. No way. I'm too busy, 12-stepping all over the city of Portland. I said, when you get out of here, call me up and we'll go to the meetings, yeah? But you see, she said, if he died, I could stop drinking. I said the same thing. If he got out of my life, I'd stop drinking. I couldn't stop drinking. I'm an alcoholic. And I have a disease. Oh, I got a, I got a disease called alcoholism. Isn't that great? I'm a drunk. And if I pick up a drink, I'm going to get drunk. And I believe everything that's said in the big book, and I go along with it, and I've listened to it for many, many years. And I, but I do know that I'm the drunk, and I must remember that I can't even pick up a thimble full of whiskey because it will send me off. And who knows when I would ever come back. You don't know. I don't know. The God of my understanding would know. I mean. Never get a chance to be sober and to enjoy this life that I'm living. I came into this program in 1970 in the dead of winter, January 28th. Cold, snow, it, there was no women. I thought I was the only woman in the city of Portland that was a drunk. And I knew better because I had drank with many of them. I was a waitress for 23 years. And I knew some of them were at the bar. And, of course, naturally, when I was six, seven months sober, I was going to go to the bar and get them. You know how we are? Oh, geez, i got to get my friend and i got to get this one and that one. I came in here like a puppy dog with my tail between my legs. I had no place to go. I didn't know anything about staying sober. And that happens to be the God's honest truth. Every day, I snap that can of beer open, and I put the whiskey in it. And I had whiskey on the side. And every day, I'm not going to drink tomorrow. And I'm not going to stand here and tell you it was... 35 days, years, and 22 days, and 18 hours. I don't know when I turned out to be an alcoholic. All I know is I drank, and I loved it. I loved the flavor. Wow. I loved what it did to me. It made me happy, and I was a party girl. Oh, we're partying tonight, boy. Come on, Jack, put your best on. Let's go. And if he said he didn't want to, I'd go out and get the party and bring it home. <laughs> Wake him up at 2 o'clock in the morning after I'd been to the bar after working and bringing a gang of 14 or 15 people home. Booze. Booze. He'd get up, Jack. What are you doing? We're having a party. Okay. And he sat and drank right with us. He and I drank together for 
good many years. And Jack never stopped drinking, and that was his prerogative, right? You know, but I stayed sober. I said, people, places, and things do not make us a drink. I heard a gentleman up here last night. I don't know where he is, but it's here maybe. I don't know, but he said he drank because he drank. My mother had nothing to do with it. And my father. Of course, I blamed him. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> had to blame somebody. But when I got into this program, they said, Joe, you're the one that kicked your elbow. Oh, I had a good time. And you know, you open your refrigerator drawer, they said, and you pour a glass of juice or a glass of water and set it on top of your refrigerator. Because your elbow has been so used to going up and down, you got to have something to help it go. So I would open the refrigerator door, did exactly as I was told. I didn't know what the hell I was doing this for. I could have put it on the counter. No, 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 I had it in the refrigerator because they said, because you open the refrigerator, get the beer. I said, oh, yeah, that's right. So you open the refrigerator, there was my glass, I take a drink, put it back, shut the refrigerator door, get my elbow moving. I said, we, we don't care what you drink, just don't drink liquor and don't drink any beer. And stay the hell away from the wine. I said, I don't like wine. I said, well, stay away from it anyway. <laughs> and you don't drink Echo Belva, you know, and you don't drink all of these things. And with that NyQuil. <laughs> I always had a cold. <laughs> you know, my eyes were so bloodshot, I never saw where it read on it. Do you think I was going to read boxers? Not me. <laughs> they said this was good for me. You know, and this is what was happening with me. I come in here well beaten. I drank for a good many years, and I was 45 years old when I came into this program. And God was with me, you know. He is with me drunks, whether you believe in a higher power or you don't. Believe that I believe because I see, I see him in your eyes. I don't care if you're sober one day, two days, three days, four days, five days. I don't care. It's just that I see that in your eyes. God is with us. I had been drinking for a good many years. And I was 45 years old when I came into the program. And I was covered with sores. My whole mouth was covered with sores. And my eyes were slits. I couldn't see. I couldn't walk well. And I couldn't talk. Can you imagine that? <laughs> I couldn't talk. I couldn't make a sentence. And couldn't eat, and I slept, but of course, I'm talking to another drunk now. I was passed out. I didn't sleep. Spiritually, I was broken, broken with nothing. Mentally, I was confused. 
with all the negative feelings. And physically, I was a wreck. And you guys invited me back. I can't. That blows my mind. You said, come back, Adele. And I was so ashamed of all of the sores on my face. And the sores, I'm going to tell you, is because I drank straight whiskey. And it burned my gullet. i got a deep voice now. But when I come into the program, it sounded just like a man. My God, I didn't know. And of course, the first thing I said to you was, I have cold sores. They're awful sore. And you said, yeah, we know. You know it was cold sores. And I couldn't smile. And you know when you have a cold in the wintertime and you've got a sore and you go to smile and it cracks and you go, oh, you put some salve on it just to keep it, I was putting salve on it, keep it smooth, you know. You knew. I wasn't fooling the drunk that was standing in front of me. So if you think you're going to fool me, you ain't. I'd been there. That's a drunk talking to another drunk. And they said, we know, doubt. You keep coming back. And you're there, Jack, forever pat on the shoulder. You're doing a good job. What the hell was I doing? I look like this. I'm doing a good job, yeah. Should have been hospitalized. My sponsor, whose name was Cooking, he's dead today, and a lot of the people way back there are dead today, took me to my first meeting. He came and saw me on a Friday morning, and he says, I'm going to take you to your first meeting Sunday night. Do you think you can not drink until Sunday night? And I said, I'll do anything. He said, I'll come and pick you up. And I'll take you to your meeting. There's a meeting at Cape Elizabeth tonight, but I don't want to take you there because the first meeting that you go to, you'll get an impression of that meeting, and you feel like you want to be there. And he says, you're a member, you'll be a member of the Portland group because you live in Portland. And I said, it's okay with me. He said, do you think you can go to meetings? I said, yeah. I never said, how many am I going to go to? I had questions, but not those kind. Now I gotta remember, I'm the one that asked for help. He didn't come there on his own. He didn't even know I existed. Until he got the telephone call that a girl by the name of Adele Donovan on Park Avenue was sick as a dog and needed some help. So he came back Friday noon, and I was like this. And, you know, if you haven't been like this, you know, I'm, I'm going to invite you to drink, and you will be, you know. <laughs> Say, oh, that didn't happen to me, oh, yeah? Well, you go out and drink, and it will. My promises. I'll write them all down. They're not in the big book, either. <laughs> so he took me to my first meeting, and there was about eight men there. 
The hall was about as half as big as this hall. Damn big hall. They were all sitting up there. And they put me down here. <laughs> and I'm all alone. I'm in the third row, the fourth seat in, all by myself. And Cookie goes over and gets me a cup of coffee. And he filled it half full. And he knew I was a drunk. Oh, well, first of all, he, he came on Friday noon. He said, did you drink? And I said, no. You told me not to. And I'm going like this. And he said, you know, I got a Valium. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, he said, it'll kind of quiet your nerves. But he says, you know, you can't get addicted. Oh, shit. I said, I don't want that. I got enough. He said, I got a drink in the car. I said, I got a drink in the house. But you see, I'm going to tell you, 25 years ago, you know, before you get the drunk to the to the 24-hour club, we're talking about people who the drink. And I can understand that today. But I used to say, why did they give him a drink? To give him a drink to get him there. Oh, I did that. <laughs> yeah. You want a drink, honey? Yeah. Okay. You have a drink. You really mean I can have a drink? And I'm going to Crossroads? Oh, yeah. Because once you get to class, I don't anymore. <laughs> I knew that. They didn't know that, but I knew that. And he offered me a drink. I said, oh, God, I got a drink right here in the house. I want a drink. He said, I forgot to bring you the literature. See, I found out later, though. But see, I didn't know that. I found out later, he didn't give me the literature because he came back to check on me. That's what you call compassion. He didn't forget little Adele up there on Park Avenue. He came back and gave me some papers. And he said, I'm going to pick you up now. Remember, I'm going to pick you up Sunday night. I'm going to take you to the meeting. And he did. And I was a member of that, that group until I left there a year ago. Whether I liked them or not. <laughs> One girl said, you don't like the group? No. She said, what is it about the group you don't like? I said, I don't like the people in it. Well, she said, what are they doing to you? I said, they're bothering me. Well, what if there was no people there? What would you do? I said, I'd be alone. She said, do you want to be alone? I said, no. You better go back to the group. <laughs> she was right. She was right. I was now taking everybody's inventory, having a ball with it. So I took them to my first meeting, and I'll be forever grateful for that. And that man drank after 16 years of sobriety. I don't know how many years he had when I came in, but, well, anyway, uh, three years later, I think it was three years later, I told him to my sponsor. He said, how the hell did you get here? I walked into his room. His mother, I had met, his mother was beautiful. Mother-in-law was beautiful. And she said, he's in there. Right in there. Okay, what the hell are you doing? Who the hell let you in here? I, said, I don't know, but I'm here. You want to go to a meeting? No. Well, and I talked to him the same way he talked to me. That man died sober. He was on his way to a meeting, going from the 24-hour club up to Congress Street, and he died on, on the sidewalk. What a way to go. 
right in God's hands. So beautiful. Well, that's really tre precious to me. Stay in the program, you see a lot of stuff. So I went to these meetings and I listened. I couldn't read. And one of the gentlemen kept saying, if you don't read the big book, you'll never stay sober. Well, I'm going to tell you something, kids. If you don't read, don't worry about it. Because here's a, I'm going to say illiterate. <laughs> I know how to read, but I couldn't read. Who the hell can read when my eyes were crossed and bloodshot? And, and I said, if I don't read that big book, I'm going to die because he said that. And I believed everything everybody said that got up here. I heard their stories so well I could tell you each one of them's stories. And they said, when you get tired of hearing somebody's story, get up and tell your own. I said, oh, no, I don't want to get up there. They said, well, then shut up. I'd say, oh, is that him again going to say that? Oh, there's only about eight guys. I mean, you know, we've got to speak a meeting. What are you going to do? And they told me I had to keep shut up, keep my mouth quiet for 30, for 90 days, three months. Pretty soon, Henry Lydon, he's passed away. He came up to me and he said, Dell, you want to speak? She's almost fell out of the chair. I said, no. Oh. I was about a month and a half sober. And I said, they said three months. I whispered to him, did you know they said three months? <laughs> and he said, yeah, I know that. But he says, you want to know something? Adele, he came right down close to me. And he said, there's a lot of firsts in this program. First, you had to make a decision to come to the program. Then you had to make a decision to come each week to each meeting. And now you've got to make a decision whether you're going to speak and share or not. And he walked away and left me. I said, gee, got my coffee and here I am. I start to shake all over again. And I said, these guys have been so good to me. I really shouldn't say no. These guys have really been good to me. So pretty soon Jimmy goes by. I said, Jimmy. He said, what is it? I said, I'll say a few words about like that. He said, wonderful. Wonderful. He walks off. I got up and I said, my name is Adele and I'm an alcoholic and I'm very nervous. And I drank for so long and I don't know how, I don't know. I guess I better sit down. did it. They were sorry for that. <laughs> There's nothing a drunk likes to do but share. <laughs> so you want to say a few words, how many? <laughs> and you know, there's a woman that was in this program that came in. They came in during the month of March, I think, February. I think everybody got cleaned out of snow. And I was going to I was going to the meetings in a truck and didn't have any. Well, I was I was also a, a contractor, you know, you guys. I was a contractor, drove truck, and I found snow. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I could have killed him for teaching me to do that. 
I mowed gardens and mowed lawns and did all of these things, you know. I almost put a truck up for sale, but I didn't deal. But I'll tell you one thing I did do. I put I put the snowblower up for sale for three years, drunk as could be. I plowed snow. I shot I, with a snowblower up on the western promenade. I said, these sons of guns are going to get out and shovel their own damn snow. I'm sick and tired of doing it. Because I was drunk. I was sitting, I had men working for me. I was sitting in the banking. I was drunk. Drank the night before, you know it doesn't go off here. So I took the lawnmowers in the summertime and I put them up for sale. I told Jax I want to sell those lawnmowers in the summertime. You can't do that. You know that. And the jaw. Oh, the jaw was gripping. He put a, he put a, he put a, uh, on the tire there, where you put on in the wintertime. Chain, put a chain on it. Well, because it wasn't, I had to work it so hard to put a chain on it. Whoa, I worked pretty good. Put him up and sold him. <laughs> he come home and I said, sold everything. He said, sold everything? Are you crazy or something? Yeah. I ain't working no more like that. I listened in this program, and I wanted this program. And he drank. And this girl, Mary, that's what I was going to say, Mary Kay, she has 44 years of sobriety today. She picked me up as sponsoring, and I knew nothing of a sponsor. And she said to me, she says, I want you to go to a retreat. And I said, what's a retreat? And she said, well, don't you worry yourself about it. She said, have you got $25? I said, yeah. She said, well, I'm going to come and pick you up, and we're going to go to a retreat in Vesta. Now, don't you worry a bit about it, and we're going to just have a nice time, and we're going to go learn about about God. Well, I was new king, thinking, you know, I was new. And they had the banner, but for the grace of God, in front of me, and the first thing I said is, oh, shit. You know, i got to go to confession. They're going to put me in the middle of a room. And they're going to say, you. And you know, they didn't do that. But I was waiting for it. So I went home and I said to Jack, I said, I'm going to a retreat. He said, what's a retreat? I said, I don't know. He said, you don't know? I said, no. I said, all I know is I got to have $25. Give me $25. I'm going to a retreat. He said, where are you going? I don't know. She had said a guy I couldn't remember. I was sick, you know. I want you to know that. And so she comes and picks me up and takes me to the retreat. I go to the retreat, and it's the first time I, I may have heard, but I went to a retreat in April, April 16th. I'll never forget it. And I learned that God loved me unconditionally. And I'm here this morning, this is a spiritual program, and I'm here this morning to tell you that God loves you unconditionally. He doesn't care what you did, and he doesn't care who you did it to. He doesn't care what you said. He doesn't care what you, who you said it to. He just loves us so much. You know, Father, uh, that, not Father Martin, Father, Father Martin, you know, has had a wonderful film, I think I saw it about five times, and he said, 
and he said the statistics to Alcoholics Anonymous are one out of 36 are chosen. Can you imagine that you are one out of 36, each one of you? And you know, that puts such a thing on me. And I said, God chose me for what? To stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. And you know, that meant a lot to me. And he taught me about the Lord's Prayer. And on that same weekend, they did, they took the serenity prayer, put it, took it apart, and put it back together. And I, I didn't understand these things. You know, I had to write down the serenity prayer. I couldn't remember. I'd seen it in other people's homes, and I said, "Isn't that beautiful?" I never knowing that one day I was going to live by that serenity prayer. And they took the Lord's prayer and they took it apart. They stretched it and pulled it and tugged it, and then they put it all back together, and they made a delta on it and understand what the Lord's Prayer is about. And there's so much meat in there. There's so, so much spirituality that enters into you. You know, we say, for thine is the power. You know, God gives us so much power. If you stop and think how much power he gave you to be here this morning. <laughs> Just look at yourself. I was up in that room and I was thinking, wow, I'm one of the chosen. And he gave me the power to be dressed and to be clean and to be happy and to look in the mirror and say, Adele, I love you. I can do that today. And the glory, he says, oh, he gives me the glory, the joy and the peace and the happiness that we were all looking for what I was talking about a few minutes ago. Sadness. The hate. We didn't know the difference. So I sat at these meetings and I went to these retreats. I went to retreats for eight years. And I went to 16 retreats because, oh, and I started one. I went to 16 retreats twice a year I went. So that I could learn what the post-suggested steps had to do with God and me. And you? And it was the best thing I ever did for myself. Because I remember that there was a gentleman, he's passed away today, and he used to get up here and he said, well, if we talk too much about God, we're going to send the, the drunk away. How can you say the serenity prayer without saying God? I, you, you know a way you tell me about it afterward. I'll talk with you after. I don't know how to do that. I have power. It takes a long time for us to keep coming back to meetings, and they keep saying, keep coming back, keep coming back, and they want us to learn, and they want us to learn. And You know, Eddie G got up here last night, and uh, it, it was so cute because uh, I just love Eddie G. I don't, I don't know if he's here this morning, but I love Eddie G, and he gave me my white chip, and he reminds me every time he sees me. I gave you a white chip, you know. I don't know. He says, sign your name right here. He says, what, what's your name? And I, what's your middle name? And I said, Blanche. He said, well, you can put Blanche right here because this is an, an anonymous program. I don't know what the hell that word was. It didn't make no difference to me. I said, well, everybody in Portland knows I'm a drunk. So I wrote, Adele Blanche Chase Donovan right across the book. 
and he gave me my white chip, and I'll be so ever grateful. And he told me that if I drank, I had to break it. Oh, God, don't tell a drunk that he's got to break something. You know, and I, I, I didn't have a pocket like you guys do, but it was on my counter. And he said, if you, break, if you have a drink, you break it and you bring it back. Can you imagine bringing a broken chip back to the group? No way. I needed to drink, but I'm not going to drink because i got to break the chip. And dummy me and dummy him, I brought my white chip back. He didn't tell me to keep it. I gave it back to him, and he gave me the red one, and he did that all the way through. So I never did get my chips. <laughs> the silver one, you know, I kept that one. And the gold one, I kept that one. And my ear chip. But in learning about God, I found that here in this program. And you were going to explain that very, very, very slowly to me. And I want to thank the Portland group, and I want to thank all the drunks and all the alcoholics that were around at that time for waiting for me. They had to wait a long time for me to get better. And, you know, I, I, was, I was two years sober or three years sober, I don't remember, maybe six years sober, I don't know, but started the detox centers where we had detox, but they started the other ones there where you go uh, rehab. And uh, I had never been in a rehab. But, you know, these people were coming out. My God, they were smart. Oh, my God, they knew all about the big book. And they knew all about the 12 and 12. And I said, Jesus, I never learned that until I was two years sober. You know, well, I, some are sicker than others. So I used to say, well, I'm sicker than they are. Because I never heard what they're talking about, you know. So I got right into the program in that area. Because all the, all the people were telling me was to stay sober. And, you know, Ernie Thompson was just a little guy about this big. And, God, he used to make me mad. And I had him for a sponsor at the group uh, for about three and a half years, and then he died. I was very fortunate to have him. And he wore a little cap, and I thought he was a railroad man. And he wore a little cap, railroad cap, and it come down over his eyes like this. So when I wanted to talk to him, I had to go like this. Because I couldn't see his eyes, you know. And I, if I wanted to talk to him, I want to see your eyes. I don't want your head hanging down here, you know. I might say, well, hey, get a puppy pin and get your hair out of your eyes. i got, I got to see your eyes. So, and you know, he threw his fingers. And, God, I couldn't even see what his expression was. And uh, I'll never forget when I picked up my red, my, my blue chip. My three months. A three months chip. Well, we had it for blue then. And uh, I said, Ernie, did you see my chip? <laughs> of course, I thought he'd never seen one before. <laughs> three months of sobriety. And you know what he said to me? Kill him. He said, Three months of sobriety. Hell, you are just dry. Well, Lord, and I teed off. What do you mean I was just dry? I had never heard of that before. I'm sober. He said, well, we don't pass blue ribbons out around here. <laughs> I ain't speaking to him ever again in my life. He doesn't know that he's talking to Mrs. Donovan.
He didn't give a sh who I was. You're a drunk. That's all you are, is a drunk around here. Well, when he spoke at the podium, he pounded on the podium. The door swings both ways. Just be sure it doesn't kick you in the ass all the way in or on the way out. And I thought he was talking to me. And then Eddie D would get up. You gotta get honest with yourself. It's in If you're not honest with yourself, you don't stay sober. And you know, I didn't sleep that night if they were on the same program. I said, if I sleep, they'll kill me. That's the kind of AA I had. They said, step one tells you you're unmanageable. Well, you are until you're sitting in that chair. While you're here, we know what you're doing. <laughs> I better go. That's the kind of that's the kind of sobriety I was getting. So when I went to the retreat and they started to talk about God being love, I said, Wow, this is pretty good. I like this and nobody was pounding on the podium. Because I was scared. I was still scared. And aren't we still scared? I've had many, many things happen to me during my sobriety, and one of them I'm going to tell you about. Uh, I don't know how long I've got, but it doesn't make any difference to me. <laughs> I'm up on a mountain, who cares? <laughs> my cat does, the home alone. But you know, when I came into this program, uh, before I came into this program, many years ago I had two children. I had a girl and a boy, and and uh, I separated from my first husband, and, and I couldn't take care of my children, and uh, I just couldn't. I was not a well kid, and I wasn't in, into the booze at that time that much either. I was drinking, but not that much. And so he had to go back to Rumford, and when he went back to Rumford, he found himself a nice woman, and uh, I was just a kid, and uh, so he put my children out for adoption. And I had no say in that, and Peter McDonald, who was the was the lawyer said, where were you, hotel, when I went, and I said, I didn't know anything about it. A girlfriend of mine come back from Rumford and, and said, did you know your children were adopted? And, you know, I almost flipped out. And anyway, they went into two different homes, and I'm not here to get any pity. It's okay. It was the way it was supposed to be. I married Jack, and he had children, and I took his children right in, just right to my bosom. They were just my little children. In their ages, when they're the same. So I had a life with some little children. I said, if I can be good to these little children, somebody's going to be good to mine. And they were both in separate homes. And, and about 35 years ago, my son found me. And we talk about miracles in this program, you know. I was drinking. I was drinking then. I'm only sober 25 years. And... Uh, he had a family started, two children, and a beautiful wife. And I got to know them. And there was a lot of dissension in, in the family, and I, I didn't see them too much because Jack wasn't that interested, you know. He was interested. I'm, I'm going to say it, and I've told him before, you're a very selfish man because I gave to the children, but you don't care to give to my wrecks. 
and and you know he couldn't say anything to that, but that was okay. So after he died, I said, "Well, Lubby, you're gone now. You ain't got nothing to say. I'm going up to see Rex." And up the scout, Egan and I went. And I went up to see my son, and it was all supposed to be. And that's why I'm living in Skowhegan. Now, if we don't believe in a higher power that I was drinking at that time, and it got worse and worse and worse. You know, that whole thing was all set up for me. You know, God had that in his plan. And if you think you're having a hard time, you're not. You just think God has that in my plan. He has something better for me. I always said, I will never close the door. I'll always be, my kids will always be able to come and knock on the door and I'll be there. My daughter, I met my daughter, she doesn't want to have anything to do with me and it's okay. You know, I got over that. She was adopted into a family that adopted five other children and so she had a family. And she wasn't too interested in having this new family. But Rex was adopted into a single home with the boy, him. And he, he, in his own little way, within himself, needed family. So his mother and father died, and he looked me up. And then he said to me, what do I call him? I said, you call him your mother and father. They're the ones that reared you. They're the ones that took care of you when you were sick. They're the ones. And so now when he talks to me about his father, he said, my dad. And I know who he's talking about. I know who he's talking about. But isn't it wonderful that there are miracles in this land? And all of those years, I waited. So, you know, you got to wait and wait and wait. There's no one to save you. you got to hurry. Things will happen to you if they're supposed to happen. And I believe my higher power, I choose to call God, has done that for me. He said, well, Adele, I guess I'm ready. I guess you're ready to go up and meet with your son and be with him. And he is so easygoing. He even softens me. He's so easygoing. Well, Mom, that's okay. We'll do it tomorrow. He's a real procrastinator, but sometimes it's good. Because I want everything. But then, and then, you know, I'll ask him to do something for me, and about a week later, I go by whatever I'm doing. I'm oh, my God. He did that. I learned, don't say anything again. Just say it once. I need the piece of board put on over there for me. And don't say it again. And about a week later, you go by the piece of board there. Say, wow, I thought he forgot. He didn't forget. He remembers his mom. He's as happy as a clam in, in batter. <laughs> He loves his mom, you know. He loves my program. He doesn't know anything about it. But he loves my program. He says, you're beautiful. I just love you, Mom. I've been waiting for years to hear that. If you don't think there's a higher power, believe that I believe. When I sat on the edge of my bed, 1970, and I was desperate, but I didn't want to drink anymore. I put my foot and feet on the edge of the bed and I was shaking. And you know yourself that I was having the tremors. I didn't know what was the matter with me. I was just trembling from head to toe. 
And I had never done that before. And I know why today, and you know why. I'm talking to a drunk. Because I took a drink. And it soothed me. It quieted me right there. Oh, isn't that nice? Another good two hours. Then I need another one. Then good for an hour. I put my feet on the edge of the bed, and I was from here to, to Paul, and I needed to go to the bathroom, and I couldn't get up. My legs went, went jiving. They just went there. And you know, it was in the middle of the night, or I didn't know what, but it was in the dark. And I didn't know if it was night or day or what, but it was winter time. And I needed to go to the bathroom. But sitting there, I, can, I, I know where I was. I saw Jesus' face on the wall. And I wouldn't tell anybody this when I came into the program because I was afraid you'd send me to Augusta. Because I wouldn't tell. I didn't dare to tell anybody. And I said, oh, if I could just stop drinking. And he put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, you know what, Adele? I think you've had enough. You know, Dr. Bob and Bill W., many years ago, you know the dates, I don't. I don't know any of that stuff. It's in the big book somewhere. It's on my animal. Oh, you just went to a convention. That's right. <laughs> but that wasn't made 60 years ago. It was after Bill was sober for a while. The 12 steps were made. And I, I really believe that Dr. Bob and Bill W. got together and they said, you know, there's a girl by the name of Adele Donovan that's going to come into this program in 1970. We're going to have something put together for her because, boy, is she stupid. <laughs> She's a stupid drunk. And if we put these 12 suggested steps together, she's going to have something to live by. And I believe that morning that God put his hand on my shoulder and he said, I got a program from you, Adele. Only if you want it. And you're going to get sober with a bunch of drunks, whether you like it or not. And they're going to teach you to stay sober. So you go there. And that was my answer. And when Cookie came, I really feel that I took step one. I knew nothing about your steps. I know nothing about anything. And step one told me, they said, we as a group are powerless over alcohol. And then that if we drink, we are, our lives are unmanageable. And I could understand that, but I, I never knew that. And you know, I had to come to Alcoholics Anonymous to have you teach me how to stay sober one day at a time. And then you went on a little bit further and you said, came to believe in a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step one is nothing but insanity. It's so in depth with anger, frustration, and hate, 
we had to have step two to go out to get us out of there. I don't want to be insane today. I'm not insane. I'm very sane today. I know what I'm doing. I'm not ashamed of what happened yesterday. And I have forgiven myself for what happened while I was drinking. But as of yesterday, I've done nothing to no one. I've hurt no one. I haven't been mean. I haven't brought up the past only to share. So I am not insane today. And this is what I was looking for. And wasn't I pleased that they said, made a decision to turn your life, your will and your life over to the care of God as we understand him or as you understand him. And I thought that was really nice because I didn't have to look at your God. I could just make up my own. I think my own is pretty nice. And my own is Jesus Christ. The God of my understanding. That cares about me so much that he just wraps me in his robes. And he says, come Adele. We're going to do some good for somebody. We don't know who, but we're going to do some good for somebody today. And these are my beliefs, and I'm only sharing them. I don't think you can find that stuff in the book. So I don't know. Maybe you can. You read it. I'll find out. You tell me at the podium. And to turn my will in my life, that was very difficult. But I'm going to tell you something. When I realized after I was sober that my son was in my life, you know, that had to be God. There wasn't anybody else. My Jack and I were married and together for uh, 43 years. We went through thick and thin. He drank and, uh, up until when, uh, when he was so sick, uh, three and a half months before he died, he was on the, we call it a kangaroo. He had to bring this little gizmo around because it fed him through here because this was all closed up with, with cancer, God bless him. I mean, I, we got to get very close together because I was able to open, make him open up. Our program taught me how to do that. And, he, and you know, he had a higher power, and he used to say, no, he didn't. <laughs> he said, I'm a heathen. I said, I don't give a damn what you are as long as you don't bother me. I didn't know what a heathen was way back when I married him. I said, what are you? He said, I'm a heathen. What's that? Never heard of it before. But, you know, he died with a, a love, a love of God. I know that. And God has a little way to inject into somebody that's real sick. And he makes them kind of happy and kind of soft and kind of soothing. I know that because I watched it. He had cancer about seven years. And I was his nurse, and I hated it. I hated cancer. One day I was fixing this little thing here, and I said, and he said, gee, I really don't feel good. And I had to change this thing three times a day, and I used to do it one one time at a time. I'd say, one more time, Bobby. Come on, get undressed. One more time, and I had to do it one day at a, one time at a time. One day I said, gee, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to give you a shot of whiskey. <laughs> the whiskey was under the desk, you know. I'd like to give you a shot of whiskey, and he said, Jesus, you would kill me. I said, well, maybe that's the reason. I don't know. <laughs> and we laughed, you know, because he, he knew I was joking. But I was thinking, though, if I could give him some whiskey, maybe maybe he'd soothe down a little bit, you know. 
said he laughed. We both laughed, you know. And we cried together, too. But God gave me all of that, and I understood that. I stood right in the middle of my ceramic hall one day, and I was 16 years sober, and I said, Why are you doing this to me? You know, cursing at God. But I found out that even cursing at God are prayers, because I got his attention. And he said, I said, why me? And he said, why not you? You take care of your husband. He has taken care of you for a long time. And we forget that. Say, we forget that as a couple. God has been good to me. I made the decision to come to Alcoholics Anonymous, to be with you people, for you to help me to grow, help me to understand life, help me to be happy. Help me to be free, free of alcohol, free of indecisions, free of hate, free of resentments. I haven't got time today. And someday it will come when you will say, People, places, and things cannot get into my life today because I don't have time. I'm too busy doing what's current right here and now, what I'm supposed to do. And you know God loves me. And you know he loves you. He wouldn't have put us all together had there not been a reason. I came up here on the mountain to be with a fellowship to listen and learn, to share and appreciate my fellow man. I didn't do anything for all of this. It was all given to me by my higher power and you. The same as when a new girl or a new man comes through the door, I must be prepared to pass my telephone number to do what I'm supposed to do because somebody did it for me. We can laugh and we can joke and we can have fun, but you know, I'm very, very serious when it comes down to this program. It's a cause of life and death that's leading it for me. I'm going to close and I want to thank my higher power for being so good to me and making me healthy and I just turned 70 and I told you that when hold on right on uh, you know I told you that I was 45 years old when I come into this program and I used and I used to say and I looked 65 well I gotta change that now because I don't know how to change it but uh, when I came into the program I looked 105 you know, because I look better now than when I came into the program. And I have pictures to show that, you know, with the big bags down under your eyes. And God has given me a bill of health that my doctor gets tired of looking at me. Go home, Adele. You're okay. Thanks. 
Nothing's wrong. God has given me my health. He's given me my son. He's given me sobriety. He's given me my friends. I never used to have any friends. He's given me you to be with. He's given me this beautiful mountain to be on. I accept anything I have to go to as long as I could be with my friends. And the most wonderful thing that I know and that Jack knows, because they ride with me all the time. Come on, God and Jack, we're going. I, can't, I, I get the, the other seat. They know that they gave me sobriety. The most important thing of my life, this drunk that couldn't talk, couldn't eat, couldn't sleep, could hardly walk. They gave me a life beyond everything. And I want to thank you for being my friends. I want to thank you for that love and that understanding that you have for me and that I try to have for you. I have many miracles in my life, and it's all my higher power who's been doing this. And again, I must say, if you don't believe, believe that I believe, because I got enough stuff in me to believe for you. It's just oozing and ready to pour out. And I want to say something because a lot of us live alone. And we get up in the morning and we don't have a partner or anybody around us. And I want to say that if somebody hasn't told you they love you today, let me be the first because I love each and every one of you. And I want to thank you again for listening to me share with you. Thank you, Paul, again. My name's Adele, I'm an alcoholic. It's really good to be here with you. A pulpit. Tonight, um, I am just so glad to be here. I, I bring you greetings from Victoria, who is going to be speaking tonight, but had to work. And um, I'm really, really pleased to be here in her place. 
Um, I'm an alcoholic and I'm also a compulsive overeater. And this is Alcoholics Anonymous and it's, we have singleness of purpose. How many, a lot of you were new tonight. Well, put your hands up if you have more, less than a year of sobriety. You rock. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. This is just an amazing place. And um, we often come here for something quite different than we get. Just hang on, you're, on for, you're here for a ride. Um, I'm also a compulsive overeater, and, and um, the singleness of purpose is extremely important at Alcoholics Anonymous because what we talk about in AA is uh, about our drinking. And if you're like me, the other things that used to float at the bottom of my purse, I loved dental appointments. Um, and, uh, but part of uh, what I've learned in here is that I need to tell you who I am, and it's important in a couple areas. Number one is that um, I ate to be with me and I drank to be with you. I could sit down, whole story. I had no social skills. I didn't like people. It was really hard when I got to be a grown-up because I was an educator and I preferred if there were new, no students on campus. Um, I really, when you told me I could be one among my fellows and I could relate to you one-on-one, -on -one, it did not interest me. I preferred if you stayed away. When you came too close to me, it felt like you were stabbing me. It just hurt. And um, so being alone was fine with me. When you got too close to me, that's what was uncomfortable. And I had to drink so that I could get even near you. I had no friends. That was fine with me. I had enough friends that just lived in my head. Um, I didn't need any outsiders. <laughs> um, the other thing about compulsive overeating is that I go to both programs. Both are equally lethal for me. I'm just as dead from one as the other, so I've got to treat both of them. And I didn't have the luxury of just doing one, although it's a really good idea to get sober for a while. For me, I have a lethal eating disorder. I'm a, I'm a recovering bulimic, which means as long as it's okay on the outside, you can't see what's going on, I'm fine. I'm also a bigger liar. I don't like paying for things anything and I'm a pig so that was part of it the other part is that um, I have 19 years of sobriety I just celebrated 19 years on June 28th and it's very cool it's all God and the other thing was I was struck abstinent and sober at the same time and I have 12 and a half years of abstinence which means I had four years in Alcoholics Anonymous when I was in relapse in that program. Now there's nothing like coming to a meeting and telling you how wonderful my sobriety is and leaving and going to drive through 17 drive throughs What goes on in the head is I'm telling myself with a liar and a thief and a fake I am in these rooms. So if you've got some compulsive behavior going on, like you're up all night on the internet looking at porn. <laughs> or gambling or whatever it looks like. Whatever it looks like. I may not have one of those things, but we know someone who does. 
And even more important, we know someone who doesn't have to do that anymore. But I have to go to those meetings where they talk about that behavior specifically. Just like I come to Alcoholics Anonymous to listen to this behavior specifically. The other thing is I have, um, I've been going for 19 years, even whatever was going on regularly. I have a sponsor in both programs, which is quite different from using a sponsor in both programs, and I do both. And I sponsor women in both programs. So that's all I'll say about that. <clears throat> um, they, t they say that we should say what it was like. So I'll tell you a little bit about um, the setup for drinking. I really didn't start going after alcohol until I was in college. I had some early intervention or uh, uh, interactions with alcohol that were blackouts from the gate. Or actually, I just have brownouts. Brownouts is when you come in and out and remember stuff. I'd much rather have a blackout. So that was the, I, I started, um, I had my first real drink and went after it at 13. I don't remember anything. Um, my stepbrothers were appalled and wouldn't take me with them anymore. And um, I grew up in a family where everyone was alcoholic. And so I had to make a place for myself in that family. And uh, it was as good girl, exhibit A, good girl. And it didn't include drinking. It never occurred to me to drink less. Never even went by the blip. I just knew that I couldn't drink, and so I didn't for a while. Uh, my mom married an alcoholic when I was, uh, well, she got with him when I was at seven and a half, almost eight. They got married when I was around 11. <clears throat> he had seven children and a wife in, uh, in what they called the insane asylum then. She was alcoholic, but they didn't know what to do with alcoholics at that, at that point. And my mom married uh, uh, this man, and uh, I was a very strange child. I know that would probably, I mean, I was really a strange kid. In my room, if you came in my room um, when I was a kid, all my books were perfectly clean. They were in little rows alphabetically. So my dolls were according to size. I preferred if my mother stayed out of the room. In fact, I used to drive her crazy. She was a, a, a rager when I was a kid, and I would just smile and say, you know, I'd prefer to stay in my room, thank you, and ask her to close the door. Um, so I had this very ordered life in which I had everything that, uh, that I needed to feel safe in order. And she marries this guy who raised Rottweilers and English Mastiffs, there was a three-bedroom house, and there were nine of us there, and the dogs lived inside. So I was absolutely shell-shocked. I grew up absolutely shell-shocked in a way I can't even describe. I resorted to books and fantasy. That was my first addiction. I would just go away. I could go away any time I wanted to. I had to go away. It was just unthinkable in that house. Oh, we also had peacocks in the basement. Have you ever heard peacocks? They shriek. Enough said. So I'm growing up here, and, and it's a completely delusional setting. 
you know, in, in, I hear people saying that we're in denial all the time. In the big book, there is no denial. The word is not in the big book. It's in the 12 and 12. It's delusion. Denial means that I know something, and based on a set of circumstances, the outcome of which repeats, I should... I really know that something leads up to this outcome, and I'm pretending it doesn't, right? Delusion means I believe the lie. And so I was really, I had the setup for delusion. We were not allowed to say anything about what was going on in that family, and if you, if you did, you got hit or outcast. And so there was, you couldn't say what it was. You know, the walls are pink, bam, they're blue. The walls are pink, no, I see they're pink, bam, they're blue. And eventually I stopped saying the walls are pink. And then I stopped believing they're pink. And I have a setup for the delusion of alcoholism before I even touch alcohol. And that serves me very well in alcoholism. It doesn't serve me well in life, but it serves me well in alcoholism. So that, that's what happens. Uh, you know, I grow up, I decide I'm not going to drink, and I go away to college. Now, I am a lockdown kid, really locked down. Um, I know you can't believe this, but my arms are too long for my body when I'm a kid. They're about the same. They still are. They're about the same size as they are now. I was a real skinny, awkward kid, did not interact with people, read, was probably too smart, and I didn't understand how that separated me. And I decided when I went to college, I wouldn't have any fun. And so I remember sitting in my dorm bed on the first day, and I thought, this must stop. And so I went down in the lobby, and there was a girl down there shooting a foster logger. I don't know if you know what shooting a beer is. I know people who are my age know what shooting beers. You open the top and the bottom at the same time. You turn it over, you open the bottom, and then you open the top, which means it goes into your throat now, right? And I grew up, uh, we had a... <laughs> For a great family of compulsive overeaters and uh, alcoholics, we had drive-thrus that you drove through and got your alcohol with pizza shops in them. And so I had learned at, at a really young age to, to chug uh, soda pop. And so I was off and running. I was just off and I had a great time. I needed alcohol to allow me to get close to you. And I don't mean close as an intimate, by the way, Intimacy is not sex. It's nice if they go together, but not necessary. Intimacy means I'm real, and I allow you to be real back at me without intervention. That's it. So I have no intimacy. I go right from drink, I take off my clothes, and sleep with you. If you're a man, Although, I, I think doing the other would be more, uh, more interesting, probably. I just didn't do that one yet. <laughs> if Jay goes, God only knows. This is my husband down here. I'm not doing another one of them. Not him, but any husband. Um, you know, 
I love my husband so much. I met him in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I had four years of sobriety when we first started uh, glancing at each other. And, um, you know, I was allowed to heal before I got into relationships. My opinion, this is the opinion section, is, is that um, I was not even, I, when I was a year or two years, I was so raw. I was raw. I mean, alcohol was the thing that allowed me to be around you. And it felt like my skin was being torn off. And my sponsor said I did not have to date if I didn't want to that I could heal before I dated. And for me, dating a newcomer is child abuse, both ways. And I'm not kidding. We are children when we sober up. And it hurts. End of opinion section, I completely lost my train of thought. So I, I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, I was sitting on that bed. Anyway, I was off and running. I came home maybe six weeks. I hadn't called home in six weeks, and my mother called me hysterical. It never occurred to me to call home after drinking the first time. And it was just like, oh, my God. <sighs> you know, I could go out and have a great time, I thought. Um, I don't remember much of it, but... And I also was, I had, you know, I went to college as a virgin, and I had no ability to relate to the, anyone, and certainly not to have sex, unless there was alcohol involved. And that's a big, you know, a big part of my story, too. So I, I go, you know, I'm off. I come home the first time, and my hair is a quarter of an inch long. It's bright purple. It's 1976, and it's the color of the chairs in cheap Italian restaurants. You know that purple? Mm. And I've got it, you know, shaved around my ears, and um, I'm wearing black, which I hadn't, I was not a, a black wearer at that time. And my mother opened the door and screamed, oh my God, she's a dyke. <laughs> and that has nothing to do with sexuality or the gay women that I love. What she was describing was, she had no words, she had no language to describe what had happened to her daughter. And alcohol was, was the change. She didn't understand what had happened and that was her only framework. So, um, you know, I, I'll tell you what happens to me when I drink. I get very warm, I flush. There's a, a word allergy that's used in our big book, and I love the big book. Um, it's not the first 164 pages because the doctor's opinion is in the preface, and that's a very important part. For me, it was the key. They talk about the sense of ease and comfort that comes at once when we take the front drink, and I really, really got that. And they talk about the allergy, and, and my um, first sponsor made me look up all the words, I, I explained to her that I was an educated woman and that I knew what it meant and she told me to look them up anyway, so I did. An allergy is an abnormal reaction to a substance. I flush, I turn beet red, so I take my clothes off. Really, in public. And I wear 
outer inner wear is outer wear long before Madonna comes on the scene. They remember me everywhere I go. If I don't happen to be wearing underwear, oh well. Um, I look for car keys. And I go home with, uh, with men whose last names I don't know. I had my own on anonymous flood before I got here. And I wake up with that. You know, there is nothing like the feeling of an alcoholic woman waking up in those circumstances. When I look over and he's got that look on his face of, oh, my God. You know, it's one thing when I do. But he does. And I've got the, you know, eyeliner down here. And I've got the last night's clothes on with one shoe, because I used to always lose one shoe. And, um, and, and I, the other thing that happens is I go to jail. Interesting, I've not been to jail since I got sober. They might be connected. I'm not sure. <clears throat> and that's what happens when I drink. And um, I don't know that, though. I don't know that that's what happens. I don't understand that alcoholism. I don't know what's wrong. I think I'm crazy. I think a lot of things, but I don't realize. I feel that pit in my stomach when I'm in, in the big room of you. And it's not you guys, but... Wherever I'm at, I know I should be at the next party, the next bar. That's where they're having fun. Oh, my God, how would I get stuck here? The next guy, the, you name it. I always want to be somewhere else. And even alcohol does not take that away. Alcohol took the edge off. But that feeling in my gut, I never was able to drink away. Not even in, in brownouts. I mean, I can't tell you how many times in those bars I had that feeling inside. And no amount of alcohol I drank ever took that away. It just dulled it. And I needed it to be dulled. So this is what happened. Now, I got sober not because I thought I would die. Dying was fine with me. I had planned it, as a matter of fact. Alcohol is a slow suicide. But I didn't think I'd live past 30. And when I turned 30, I realized that I was going to live for a long time feeling the way I felt. And that's what got me to Alcoholics Anonymous. Not dying. That was fine. But living like that inside, you know, was more than I could ever even stand. And so when I, when I got here... I d actually, my, my first meeting was a closing meeting of the South Bay Roundup, about 4,000 people. That was just about as intimate as I could get. My first regular meeting was about a 300-person speaker meeting. And the rest of the time, I went to lots of different meetings. I'd go to a place three or four times. If you can get a small home group, God bless you. That's a, that is where I found real recovery inside. But I was not able to do that. <clears throat> I could not get too close to you. It was too frightening. So there's lots of meetings in Southern California. Have at it. <laughs> go ahead. 
everywhere. I went all over the place. It's great. We're very fortunate here. So when I, when I uh, came finally to Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I went to that speaker meeting, my regular speaker meeting, and I sat by the door because there was far too much truth being told, and I knew what happened when truth got told because violence broke out in my house, and I was ready to get out when something started flying. I didn't trust you. I didn't trust you because I didn't trust me. You know? And I sat by the door, and it was three months before anyone said hello to me. You were awful. <laughs> now, I'm six feet tall, and I wore heels. I made sure I always wore heels to those meetings. Maybe I was six three. And I gave you the do not talk to me under any circumstances look. And you obeyed. Well, of course, what I really wanted was you to talk to me, right? That's what I wanted most of all. I felt so angry that you weren't saying hello to me, yet I was sending out the signal, stay away. And the old timers stayed away from me because they didn't want me to leave. They could see I looked like a doe in the headlights. And the new people were probably just scared. <laughs> but, um, but nobody talked to me. And that was probably what I needed at the time. You know, if you would have gotten too close to me. Hugging, forget it. You know, first of all, you held hands and, and said that Christian prayer. It's not a Christian prayer. Any other Jewish recovering people in here? No? Well, okay, one admitted one. I knew that... Um, Jews, you know, don't come to AA. It's in churches, for God's sake. I knew it was a cult. We don't get on our knees. You guys were getting on your knees. I told my sponsor I couldn't get on my knees. I was a Jew, and she said, get on your knees anyway. Where your body goes, your spirit and mind will follow. Just like AA. When you come in here, it doesn't matter if you want to, don't want to be in here, if you don't hear anything. You put your fanny in the seat, and the mind and spirit follows. So I'm, I'm so glad you came here tonight, especially if you didn't want to. I went to, I'll, I went to meetings for 16 years. My first waking thought every single morning was why, how I could get out of going to the meeting that day. 16 years. And I went to meetings at least five times a week. Now that's contrary action. And that's a great a contrary action is a great definition for surrender. It's a working de definition. Where I grew up, if you surrendered, you were dead. And surrender, taking contrary action, is a great definition for that. And I took lots of contrary action, lots and lots of it. When I came here, I was working 12, 14 hours a day. I lived in North Hollywood. I went to school in Irvine, and I worked in, in uh, near Long Beach. If you know that geography, there's about an hour between each one of those ways. Um, and I went to about nine meetings a week. I was busy. My head never shut up. Never. I had two operas, you know, television commercial, conversation about someone who wasn't there, about things, something that wasn't happening going on at all times. And um, 
you know, I needed some relief. There was no alcohol, and meetings provided a great deal of relief for me. At least I could, well, any other counters in here? Counters, people who count obsessively? No? Okay, let me tell you what that looks like. I go to meetings for the first probably, I don't know, 13 years or so. I count you. And then someone gets up and goes for coffee, and I have to count you again. And then someone else comes in, and I've got to count you again. Then I'm not sure if I made the right number, so I've got to count you again. I'm tapping, I'm using both hands, and I was a real piece of work. And I'll tell you, I look like someone who knows where she's going, so everyone follow me. Um, I was nine months sober, and I was sponsoring 11 people. Any other doers here? Compulsive doing is a huge part of my story. And in some respects, it served me very well. Um, we have 12 steps. They, you know, it's not a tome that you, you put on your, your, uh, your door. You, they're actually things that you actually do. And that was very helpful for me um, as a doer. And I jumped into service, which is great. There was a point at which I had to recover from compulsive doing. But that came li later. Um, so I've got this counting going on, and I, I was just a nutcase. So I went to lots of meetings, and I did a lot of service. I got my first sponsor when I was six months sober. I, I had been, I was well into my ninth step by the time I had nine months, and I was sponsoring 11 people. She told me, Adele, maybe some other people have the luxury of not working the steps, but you're far too ill. And so I really believed her, and so I did them. Um, the first step over here, I love this as a teacher. I love visuals. Long arms are my gift from God to point to them. <laughs> the 12 steps, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. Notice there is an E-M dash in the middle. That's a long hyphen. That denotes a separate thought for two things. The only thing we have to do perfectly is the first half of the first step. I have to be convinced to my uttermost self that I am powerless over beverage alcohol and the other things that floated at the bottom of my purse. Any tweakers here? Right on. Just works faster, babe. The end that our lives had become unmanageable I didn't get that for a long time, and you don't have to get it. It will get you at some point. We just have to have the, the first half of the first step. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves would restore us to sanity. This gives a lot of people problems, this higher power thing. Oh, no, I can't do that. I can't believe in God. Well, I'll tell you that we all have a God. In fact, we usually have a whole pack, you know, a purse full of them when we get here. Having a God is not our problem. Alcohol was my God. It told me where I would live, who I would go out with, what kinds of jobs I would do, cocktail waitressing, everything. Men, power, I've had all of them. Of course they were my higher power. I really asked myself two things when I wanted to know what my higher power is. Number one, what am I devoted to? What do I spend my mental and, and physical energy on? Number two, what do I turn to when I'm afraid? 
Bingo. When we get here, we have to be convinced to our uttermost selves that our God is not producing for us the effect we would like. And so we try something different. That's all we do. You can just exchange those, God that you, those gods that you have for one that just may work and has worked for millions of people. Good, orderly direction. My first sponsor told me, G-O-D, good, orderly direction, or group of drunks. That's great. And I believe that she believed, and that was good enough. You know? We just exchange something that's really not working for something that might work. In the third step, made a decision to turn our will and lives over to that. We've turned our will and lives over to our really non-functional God. Might as well try something else. It sure isn't working. If we've gotten here and we really get it, that it hasn't. So we make a decision. There's no action. The fourth step is where the action comes. What we do is we have some physical and, and um, action-oriented things that we carry out that prove that we've made a decision, right? I make a decision, and a decision's nothing, it's a thought. But the fourth and fifth steps are actually activities that we undergo that prove that we've made a decision. And actually, through doing that, and telling them the things that we were never going to share with anyone. Then we come to believe in this power even more strongly, which is so cool. In steps six and seven, um, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. First of all, defects of character never worked for me. I felt utterly defective when I got here. The words didn't work for me. And so I use something that stands in the way for me in the sunlight of the spirit. That worked really good. Over time, I've realized that there are more effects than defects. And what they are is, for example, if I have something that looks like greed or sloth, that's the defect. Right? What underlies that? What I did for many years sober, many years, was I used the 10th step as a flagging tool. I would, I would beat myself, which isn't what it says at all, by realizing my defects of character and then trying to make them stop. It says right there that we turn them over to God, but I somehow missed that one. And what I, had to, um, what I came to find out, especially in recent years, was those are really effects of an underlying fear. And for me, really terrified. I kept, I could, I could muscle myself into not doing those things for a period of time and eventually I would break out in that behavior. And I had to because I was so terrified. I was so terrified of something that preceded the behavior that looked like this defective character. If you don't know what your defects of character are, don't worry about it. They will get in contact with you. The A step, I have people get, say they're stuck on the A step. Where? You make a list or your sponsor helps you by making a list after your fifth step 
and there they are. I mean, there's no place to get stuck on it. It just means we don't want to do the ninth step, which I completely understand. I thought it said admitted we were powerless over alcohol and pay back the money. And there are actually steps in between, but I didn't hear that. And, and it says, you know, we, we, the promises are right halfway through that ninth step. We start getting those promises, which is just really cool. And what happens in that ninth step is so amazing. Really, really terrifically amazing. I want to talk about uh, the ninth step for a second because I come from very severe sexual abuse. And, you know, that was something I knew that God was not big enough. Two things. Number one, I have been very ill sober. And number two, that that sexual, it was too big for God. It was too dirty. It was too much. You couldn't fix that. Unfixable. And, um, and so there were two people on my resentment list that I was incapable of making amends to. One was dead, one was not. I couldn't, I was too frightened. But I was willing, I was willing. I just couldn't. And I, and I did that ninth step. Um, one of the things I did in that ninth step was I had stolen money from an employer. I know none of you have ever done that. It was the petty cash, which I thought if they called it petty, it must be mine. <laughs> and uh, someone else had gotten fired. And I really drank over that, man. I really drank over that. Where I went, I went in there and made amends and he was not happy with me. He was really mad, the president of that company. And he wanted to know how I did it, and he grilled me, and, and uh, it was one of my first big amends. It doesn't matter what they do. We clean up our side of the street, so we, it's the bag of rocks we're carrying around. And they're invisible, but they're heavy. And we don't even know they're in the bag until we drop them, you know? And so I found out, well, I paid him back every month for about a year and a half. And at the end of it, he wrote me a letter. He was very um, mean to me. <laughs> he said, you have restored my faith in humanity. We do not know how this is going to affect anyone. I later heard that he went to another anonymous program. He had a little, just a little problem with a, um, with the drug. So, you, you know, we may be the only copy of the big book that anyone ever sees. And that's really cool. But I couldn't do that with the others. Um, I went to, I've had, I had 10 years of serious therapy sober. And I had lots of therapy before I got sober. Um, therapy in place to, as a treatment to alcoholism is lethal. Self-knowledge avails us nothing. If it's used for a cure for alcoholism, it's lethal because we think it's helping and then it's addressing that issue. However, in of course, you, we never tell those therapists what we're really doing. They might be able to really help us. But as a tool with sobriety, I found it to be very, very helpful. I did all kinds of stuff. I, did, I went to healers in Mexico. Uh, I did everything. And... Um, you know, I had, uh, when I was about 10 years sober, I had done all this work, 
and I, I had, was having some body work done, and a woman later, she, I don't even think she even touched me, um, but I felt a hand come down on my throat. <clears throat> and I had all the memories of, I was, you know, six, six weeks old. I had all the memories of what had happened. And I know now that I must have needed them because God will give us everything we need to heal. Everything we need. If you don't have the memory, if you do have the memory, we get it all to heal here. When I was 16 years sober, I leaned down to turn on the bathtub. And the thought came into my head, he would never have hurt his daughter. It was a voice that came. And I knew it was true. I knew it. And in that moment, I knew he was looking for peace, just like I had looked for peace. And I had hurt everyone around me. And I knew it. And it wasn't here. It went through me just like a jolt. Now, that one second it took to go through me took 16 years of hard work. But it hit me just like this. And I realized there was nothing to forgive. And it was gone, clean. And I had the same experience with my stepfather, whom I wrote and we reconciled. He was so happy to hear from me. And I had all the memories of all the wonderful things he had done. You know, it's just amazing. The 10th step has us keep current. The 11th step is absolutely the thing that has changed my life. Um, three minutes a day sitting quietly was all I could handle. First of all, the, the second half of the 11th step is not extra credit. Um, you know, it, it occurs to me that not praying is like wanting a best friend you never call. You know, like really wanting a best friend and making no um, effort to actually engage, right? And meditation is like having a friend you never listen to. I think, I really think prayer is in there because we alcoholics love to talk. And I, you know, I've come to under, understand over time that I spend so much time in my head trying to think about God. I'm using the wrong tool. There is no God inside my thoughts. It's a, when you felt the presence at any level, what does it feel? It's like, oh, you know that feeling? Didn't we look for that in the bottle or the pipe or whatever your deal was? I just wanted that. And then the thoughts start. Oh, God, I hope I'll get that again. How am I going to get that again? You know. But it's the feeling. It is that sense of okayness. And in that moment, I'm completely present. I cannot be thinking and present at the same time. They are mutually exclusive. And so I'm looking for a, this thing, this higher power in my thoughts. It's like going to the hardware store for bananas. I'm using the wrong tool. It's the awareness tool, the awareness that happens between the thoughts. Now, when I started meditating, I've told you a little bit about what my mind was like. And I'll tell you, that was, it was like that because I was very frightened. I was very frightened, and my brain thought if I stopped thinking, I would die. I lived my whole life from the nose up, absolutely from the nose up. 
And so I had, the compulsive thinking was, was a sign of my dis, dis-ease, my unease. And when I started meditating, three minutes, three minutes, you can be th- late three minutes to anything. Three minutes. It was so hard. I did that for 11 years. And it got really loud before it got quiet, really loud. And if it gets really loud, that means it's working. Not that it's not working. We become aware of the thinking, and it's really loud. How cool is it to be aware of it? It's the, You don't have to quiet your mind. You're going to quiet your mind with your mind? Good luck. I tried it for years. We just have to I had to sit. If there were, was anything moving, I was in big trouble. I had to sit, and I began witnessing this mind of mine. It was like, whoa, look at that. Cool. And over time, I started having longer periods of okayness. And that stretch, I I meditate a lot longer now, but it took me uh, many, many years. Meditation has been the biggest, oh my goodness, it's almost time. I'm going to end then about meditation. I'm going to tell you about my health issues because you might be able to think, oh yeah, but she's not like me. I'm sober. I'm going to tell you about the miracles in sobriety. It's miraculous I'm not drinking for 19 years. That's a miracle. It's miraculous I'm alive and vertical. Any day I'm vertical, it's really a good day. Uh, sober, because I've had a myriad of serious health issues. I've had 15 major surgeries. I define major as there are power tools involved. And large scars. Thank God my husband fell in love with me before I had them. He rather likes them now. I'm glad about that, too. I've had uh, a major stroke and five uh, subsequent strokes. I had an ABM, which was an embolism on the other part of my brain. Thank goodness it didn't burst. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. I, I can't compulsively think like that. It just doesn't work anymore. Thank God. You never know what your gifts are wrapped up in. Never. You can't judge them. Right now, I'm right up against the square of red. You know, if I stand back and stand back and stand back, it's a huge mosaic. But I don't see it till I'm far away from it. Now I have enough experience to know that I'm in the midst of a miracle in crisis. I just don't know what it is yet. I've had a open heart surgery. I've had just about everything taken out or moved that you can you can do. Um, three years ago, I, I fell, broke my hip, my entire system shut down. I was about 30 pounds less than I weigh now. Um, about 100 pounds at six feet tall. If you're listening to this on tape, and they had given up. They had given up on me. <clears throat> they had given up on me, and I had another spiritual experience in that hospital. And I was healed. That's remarkable. You know? I continue to have health challenges. And it's always when I'm saying no, yes to something that is not okay for me regardless of my judgment. So now I know it's a touchstone to that. It's a touchstone to that. When I got sober, I did not have the wherewithal to choose what I would do. I had to say yes to everything. The only thing I ever said yes to before was something that would get a result in a plaque or a promotion. Don't pay me, just give me a plaque and pat me on the back. Um, But 
So I had to start doing things that were really outside of my experience. That's what contrary behavior is. You cannot judge if you're new what will be good for you because it's outside of your experience. And so you do the contrary action and the feeling follows. I thought I spent my whole life waiting, waiting to feel different so I could do different and it's backwards. The whole self-help industry works that way, but that's not how it works for us. And uh, what, what happened to me was that I, I have had, a, you know, a set of unbelievable miracles. And they, they continue to happen. You know, the fact that I can even talk to you tonight is a real miracle. So don't give up. You know, during that time, I had to get on medication and get off medication, get on medication, get off medication, get on medication, get off medication. It's hard to talk about in an AA meeting, but I understand how to do that. I understand what that feels like. I was depressed for three years. I had medical help for that. If you have an opinion about that and no experience, please tell your sponsor. Don't tell someone who might kill themselves. It's hard to work the steps when you're dead. And I no longer have to take that, but I did. And I'm really glad for it. And, um, you know, I'm so grateful to be here. Please keep coming back. It's an amazing place here. Don't leave. Thank you.